Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. Okay, before we get into today's episode, I want to get some feedback from you, the listener. We're looking at ways that we can take the podcast in new directions, new guests that we want to have on the show, new ideas we want to share with you. So we have a lot of threads going for this at Expat Money Forum, our private Facebook group. If you go to expatmoneyforum.com, you can join the conversation. I want to hear feedback from you guys. What topics have we not covered that you want to hear more of? Do you want to hear more stories from successful expats who have moved offshore? Do you want to hear more business-related stuff, more finance-related stuff? Are you more interested in immigration and visas and passports? Is it the investments or real estate? I want to know what you are interested in. This show is not about me. It is about you guys. It is about all of my amazing listeners and trying to help inspire you and get you the best up-to-date knowledge every single Wednesday when I publish this show. So join the conversation at Expat Money Forum. Let me know what you think, what you want to hear more about, how I can best serve you. It's really important to me to make this show the absolute best in our space. And I think we're off to a really good start. Podcast has been going for over four years now, which is just hard to believe. It seems like just yesterday I started it, and the feedback has been amazing. But there's always room to improve. There's always things we can do better. So share your knowledge, share your expertise, share what you want to hear, share your wants, your desires, your needs, your goals, everything with us at Expat Money Forum. I really appreciate it, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a Forbes 30 under 30, a Rich Topia top 20 young entrepreneur, a Pi Beta Kappa and social entrepreneur in sustainable innovation and entrepreneurship in rural, remote, and island regions, and has experience living, working, and traveling in over 40 countries. Please welcome to the show, James Ellsmore. James, how are you doing? Hi, it's great to be here. I'm doing very well, thank you. James, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of talk us through your backstory and how you got working on social entrepreneurship and sustainable innovation? Sure. So I grew up in a very small rural area in England, about um, an hour south of Manchester on the Welsh border. And, you know, my family were farmers. That was my, my life. But I was lucky enough to get a scholarship when I was 18 to move to the United States and do my undergraduate degree there and really that opened up my world in a lot of ways, although we tend to think that the UK and the US are, are similar. 
moving to the US really blew my mind in terms of how different it was and how different the cultures are. And in many respects, the US is just much more open to entrepreneurship, innovation, and encouraging people to um, follow what what their interests are. I lived in North Carolina for a few years, moved to the Bay Area, San Francisco, and was involved to an extent in the startup scene around renewable energy there. And I really enjoyed this intersection of renewable energy and innovation. But what I always found was that innovation is seen as something that is really centered on big cities like San Francisco, New York, London, Singapore. And there is plenty and really interesting things happening across the world in areas that perhaps don't come to mind. So I ended up getting involved with this group of countries called Small Island Developing States. I'll use the acronym SIDS. Um, That is a group of countries that makes up about 50 different jurisdictions around the world. And I worked for the COP climate conferences uh, with these countries. I've been involved in the Caribbean particularly and saw the amount of entrepreneurship and really interesting things that are being pioneered in these places. And so I decided that that was an area that I really wanted to get into and work out how I, with the ability to work in the US and the UK, could help channel resources and improve access to the things that we often take for granted for entrepreneurs to be available for young entrepreneurs in these areas. That's super interesting. But I want to go back a little bit. I want you to dig deep for me. Like on these SIDS, like how did you decide that you wanted to niche down so much? Because for me, that that is really niche and I love it. I think it's brilliant. But like explore a little bit for me, like how did you make that connection to go not just for innovation, not just for social impact, not just for you know, entrepreneurship and sustainable living, but how you did it then for small island nations. So, of course, the running joke with all my friends is that I just looked for the niche that would allow me to spend as much time on the beach as possible, <laughs> uh, which is, of course, not entirely true. Um, that That is a great perk, but uh, one of the things that I'm always you know, encouraging people to think about is that, of course, people are actually living in these countries, having real lives, have all the problems that we have and more and it's not all about the beach and the rum as a lot of people might might associate the Caribbean with so that's really important it's a difficult one to be honest I don't know why I had this fascination with islands for a long time I always think that there's something really interesting and that's really encapsulated by island communities whether it's on a, a national scale like Jamaica or a small scale like the Scottish islands somehow having that physical boundary of water changes the way that a community interacts compared to a a smaller community of a similar size that might be in a large mainland area where there's no physical barrier. In terms of getting involved, I started to volunteer at various different conferences oriented towards development. And then that culminated with me having a kind of internship with the Seychelles National Delegation to the United Nations Climate Conferences, which was this real entry point. And this this area of small island developing states is really somewhere that once you've made the initial contacts, you can really get into the field and start to know more people. But of course, it's not an easy area to get into uh, first. In terms of the number of countries, obviously a large number of jurisdictions, maybe about 2% of the world's population. And there are plenty of people that will focus on the Middle East or Latin America or Africa. And those are really huge nations, or sorry, not nations, huge areas. But SIDS are much smaller in terms of the population. If you think about the amount of the world's territory that they cover, though, I mean, French Polynesia alone 
covers a larger area in terms of its ocean than the whole of the European continent. So they've got these huge areas of oceans, which are really important, a huge diversity of cultures, a huge number of endemic species and things like that. And obviously this real importance in terms of the vulnerability to climate change. One other thing just quickly that was really interesting for me coming from the renewable energy space is that most small island developing states have very high electricity rates. So Jamaicans pay four or five times the price that Americans pay for their electricity, despite the fact that the average income in Jamaica is about a tenth. So there's this huge need naturally because you have that high cost. It allows you to do things economically that perhaps wouldn't be possible in the United States or Canada or Europe. So what are you doing to help bring down the costs of electricity in countries like this? So one of my entry points into this is through an NGO, which I'm, I'm now running called Solar Head of State. Because it's an NGO, I don't do that full time. This is kind of a, an extra time thing for me that works quite well and complements my own business. But Solar Head of State, the original idea behind that came from a campaign in the Bay Area asking President Obama to install solar panels on the White House, hence the name. That also got involved with the small island developing states because they were approached by President Mohammed Nasheed from the Maldives, who was a big environmental campaigner at that time. This was 10 years ago now, and decided that he wanted to beat President Obama to become the first world leader to install solar panels on the kind of executive residence. So this was before I was involved in this group, but they ended up going to the Maldives, working with the president and helping him to install solar panels and giving some training to local Maldivians. And after that, we got interest from other island nations who, you know, despite their small size and obviously negligible carbon dioxide emissions overall, decided that they wanted to make a mark and kind of say that they were leading by example on decarbonization. And also the fact that renewable energy makes sense for a lot of other reasons. I must emphasize it's not just about carbon emissions in the in the islands particularly. There are plenty of other reasons that I can go into further about, about renewables. So so we ended up in, in this campaign where we then installed solar in St. Lucia on a similar project. I'm now heading to Jamaica next month for the same project there where we're working with the government to install solar on Jamaica House, the Prime Minister's residence, and really using that as a way to raise awareness. So it's not about the, the small token installation, which is really a publicity stunt. It's about how we can leverage that to get renewable energy in the news, on the radio, get people talking about it. We had the Jamaica Solar Challenge, which was a competition for young people to create songs. And we've had this incredible reggae-style solar song that's been released that we'll be encouraging to get on the radio and, and playing everywhere. So we really focused on the education side. And there's obviously many different angles that you can approach this, but we want to help with educating young people and communities and also governments and politicians and where the governments are already doing the right thing we help really hold them up and you know shine a light on what is happening as in jamaica where they really are doing a lot for renewables and you know if it was ranked alongside the united states it would be in the top 10 states so doing a lot better than many many parts of the u.s which is its big big neighbor that's really interesting i had no idea that jamaica was so involved in renewable energy so is that really where you have a lot of your focus today on jamaica I would say Jamaica's been the big one over the last year because we have this project coming up there, which has been actually more than a year, two, three years almost in the making. But we're looking, we have a lot of interest from across the region. So potentially we have other projects which will be slightly, slightly different, but a similar vein in Belize, Guyana, Tobago, possibly Barbados. And then also in the Pacific Islands, we have a strong interest from projects in Tonga, Palau. 
Kiribati and potentially Fiji, so some of the really small remote Pacific islands. So we're continuing that solar and estate project, but in the process of also, through the NGO, launching a innovation lab. So what we want to do there is essentially bring a week-long event to some of these remoter countries where we can give training and expertise to local entrepreneurs, bring in outside experts and, and make the most of local experts, and really help them develop their businesses. So this is something that's kind of in the process of development. And we'll probably be focused around sustainability, not just renewable energy, but broader. Um, sustainability is a huge issue, obviously, for islands and can range from water, food, and energy and all those other related issues. And so we're looking at how we can host these acceleration events to really support local businesses, get them off the ground, but also those projects that have real potential to be replicated elsewhere. What's interesting about these island countries is because of their unique constraints, really challenging both economic and environmental issues, they can actually prototype ideas that can then be implemented on a much larger scale in other countries afterwards. So any of those ideas that really stand out for you, any of those ideas that you would like to take to other countries and play with and see how they work in other countries? I don't know if I have a specific business model, but more generally, I think what will be interesting is, is well, for example, there's a, there's a couple of projects that are doing these greenhouses that are maximizing local food. So a huge issue in both the Caribbean and the Pacific is most islands import 90% of their food just because it's actually cheaper to buy chicken from China than to grow chicken locally, part of the global system that we live in and a, a disadvantage there. So, of course, because of the long transportation distances, we end up with lots of canned food. And despite the fact you might think tropical paradise with all this local fruit and vegetables, people end up not getting enough of the basic fruits and vegetables, eating a lot of canned spam, chicken, whatever, and that really adversely affects the health. Sorry, nine of the 10 most obese countries in the world are Pacific Islands, which is really unfortunate. So I've got a friend who's doing a really interesting project with developing local greenhouses that can also withstand hurricanes and being able to use that to grow local food in an economically efficient way. Well, I can definitely attest to food on some of these small island nations. Like I've traveled extensively through the South Pacific and the Caribbean, and I'd say both regions, and and I don't mean to <laughs> insult any of my listeners here, but my goodness, some of the food over there is really bland, Like, and you were right about the spam and things like this. Like I've been to Fiji five times, I've been to Tonga and Vanuatu, and some of these countries have the most boring food in the world, and it's really not what you would expect, you, exactly as you said. You know, you expect these fresh tropical fruits and, you know, pineapples and coconuts and mangoes and all things like this, and really that's not the case at all. A lot of times it is canned goods and packaged biscuits and things like that. Yeah, I have a friend who's Tongan, but born and grew up in Australia. And he went to visit some family on one of the outer islands, a really remote area of the country. And the first thing they said to him, you know, they wanted to welcome him and his family back with a really big meal. And they apologized because they'd run out of spam and said, you know, we've got no <laughs> spam left. We'll have to give you lobster instead. And so a lot of it is actually a, a cultural thing in that because of the way um, that that kind of colonization worked in those countries, a preference has been given for these Western foods over the coconut and the fish and all these kind of wonderful foods that are available locally. So I think that there is really good food available locally, but unfortunately part of it has been a cultural thing that people now kind of give more prestige to the imported food from 
normally from New Zealand or Australia. And unfortunately, because of the long distances, that normally comes in a can. So then I assume part of your challenge then is a paradigm shift for these people, helping them to realize that actually what they have in their own backyard is what traditionally people from the Western world would be coveting. Yeah, completely. And, you know, we're, we're very careful about the way that, that we, do, we do that in terms of we work with local groups. So in the Caribbean, we have this really good partner, the Caribbean Youth Environment Network, which is this whole group of really engaged young people that kind of understand these issues and want to enact change in their local community. So the way that we go about this, obviously, we don't want to be the foreigners coming in and telling people what they should eat because that is not going to work and not going to be productive at all. But by giving resources and working with the local groups that, that kind of understand that, that's really the best way of making change. And, and sometimes that's education, sometimes it's policy. It really varies so much across the different countries. Yeah, I imagine that must be a very delicate conversation. It's not something you can go in and tell people what to do, perhaps even just leading by example and you know influencing people one at a time. Of course, and particularly as an, uh, although I'm British, we're an American organization, so coming in and telling people that they've got bad food, you'll definitely get some eyebrows raised if you're coming from America and saying that, whereas obviously there's a global stereotype of what American food is as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's always a delicate balance, and it's really about coming in and kind of empowering people to make change as opposing trying to have top-down change, which is rarely going to ever, ever work, just telling people what they should do. So it's a definitely a delicate balance there as an outsider. Another thing that I think is going to be really interesting is smart grids and utilities. And without going too much into the details behind that, essentially how we can best incorporate renewable energy into a grid system that is also vulnerable to natural disasters. And obviously, Puerto Rico, probably a lot of your listeners are American. Puerto Rico must come to mind somewhere that really struggled last year and is still struggling today to get itself built back up. But the rebuild process for Puerto Rico and similar islands will be a chance to use this new technology, show how it can actually improve people's lives and make us more resilient to disasters and scale that up, hopefully for larger areas of the future. The reality is that if you were to build a new grid, electricity grid today in any country, you wouldn't do it in the way that we have electricity grids. But of course, we have these old systems that are difficult to change and we already have so much investment in the infrastructure. We can't just uproot them and, and build new ones. So Puerto Rico is a place where the grid was almost wiped out and they're trying to rebuild it and be able to use those new technologies and prove that they're actually economically viable. I think now there's a really interesting tendency in Puerto Rico because it's this kind of, the way that it's structured politically, it's almost a, a limbo between being American and not being American. So Americans that move down there from, I guess, the mainland, for want of a better word, can go there and still have most of the benefits except voting that they would have in the mainland region and kind of the security with their finances, with their property, anything like that. So we're seeing a lot of people now moving in from particularly California and New York down to Puerto Rico, which might seem an odd thing to do at this time. But I think over the last year, about half a million Puerto Ricans have left the country, mostly to Florida, but to other parts of the US as well. And so property prices have been at a real low. And so a lot of people are snapping up bargains. You also hear a lot about the cryptocurrency people who've made a lot of money in other states who are now just becoming wise on how to tax that. And so moving to Puerto Rico where they don't really have, have a tax system and they can, they can save a lot of that money. So 
there's this interesting thing happening in Puerto Rico where they've obviously got these huge environmental issues or social issues as well with water, imports of food and electricity, but also they've got this outflux of locals and an influx, which is smaller than the people who have left for sure, of mostly Americans who are wanting to live there and um, make, make new lives there. So it's a really interesting time. I think the government is trying to capitalize on that. But there's a lot of people who are understandably worried about the impact that, on the one hand, all these wealthy people from the north are coming in and bringing their money, which is fantastic, but whether it's going to kind of actually have benefits for the local people, who many of whom have really been living in dire poverty since, since the hurricane. So a lot of interesting things happening in Puerto Rico, and I do think that it's kind of been flooded a little bit recently, particularly with renewable energy companies trying to go down there, whereas some of the neighboring islands that aren't under U.S. jurisdiction just haven't had that same influx. Wow, James. Those are both really interesting examples, both the hurricane-proof greenhouses and the smart electricity grids. Those are definitely projects that I'm going to want to watch out for. So I want to switch things up a little bit again. I want to talk to you about failure. I want to hear some of those stories or examples of when you thought a project would work out and you just fell on your face. It just didn't happen the way you wanted it to. And really what the lessons you got from that. Because I'm sure working with some of these smaller governments, there must be some real challenges that you've had to face. Yeah, so I've had some really interesting experiences working with the different governments of the said countries. And often they do tend to be quite bureaucratic governments, broad brush there, but there is, there is often a lot of bureaucracy for, for any projects, which is understandable, given that the small size of the government in some ways is a blessing and a curse, because on the one hand, I can pick up the phone and speak directly to the energy minister or sometimes even the prime minister in some of the small countries in a way that would just never be possible with working in a large country. On the other hand, you might have an energy ministry that has an entire staff of two or three people in the smallest countries. So you have really overworked and understaffed people who are doing an amazing job of what will be done by a huge department in another country and often just don't have the time to do everything that they should be doing. So working particularly over email and from, from a distance, things do take time to do. And it's really easy to blame that on island time or whatever, but in reality, people are just very, very overstretched and doing what, what they can without many resources. So that's definitely interesting. And I think I've had a couple of experiences, particularly working with governments, where you obviously have the fickle nature of politics, and this applies to island countries just as much as it applies to you know large European countries as well. Governments change, projects get shifted, priorities change. So we've had a couple of situations, I don't want to say which countries because it's a bit politically sensitive, but where we've you know had a project that's been three years in the making, we've been planning on launching it, and then the government changes and the government has completely different priorities. So that has been a bit of a frustration for us, particularly as a nonprofit. We don't have many resources and being able to kind of, you know, we're trying to do what we can to benefit the population as much as possible. And it doesn't always quite work like that. So fundraising can be a real challenge for us because it takes us a long time to get traction. And we're still building it. That's why I do other things outside of this on a day-to-day -day basis. So do you find that the response that you normally get while contacting these people and trying to implement these plans, do you find that it's normally favorable? Do you think it's normally positive? Or do you have much of a pushback from them? I think one of the big advantages and the reasons that I got into working with the SIDS countries is, in general, the governments are very switched on to the sustainability needs of their countries. And energy is, in most countries, with a couple of exceptions, a priority. So we tend to be working with the countries that have already 
made energy and implementing renewables a priority and helping existing programs. So we're not coming in and saying, you know, we think this should be your policy ideal. We're, we're going to people that already we know are going to agree with us. So in general, that's not too much of a problem. And because we've now got this relationship with several countries, we tend to kind of move into new countries on personal recommendations and even have people approaching us. So that's been a really good way of kind of avoiding those issues. So what are some of the countries that you work most closely with then? So Jamaica right now, as I mentioned before, that's been a project developing over the last few years. St. Lucia was the previous project. And then we also have this relationship with an organization called the Pacific Island Development Forum, which is essentially mini European Union Association of Pacific Island Nations, which has about 12 member countries. And so we work with them, and the idea is that we'll, we'll be working across all their member countries. We're hoping to develop relationships, we're in the process of, of negotiating relationships with similar type of organization in the Caribbean. So that will, again, allow us to work across both of those regions. And then I've worked in the Seychelles. I'm being a bit vague because the, the nature of the work varies so much between different countries, but the Seychelles and the Indian Ocean has been another place where I've been actually working with the government on their delegations to the United Nations climate conferences and, and supporting that work. Well, I think that's really interesting about the South Pacific, because I read an article of yours from 2016 talking about Kiribati and what they were doing. And I'm kind of curious about your opinion about these, you know, South Pacific countries with the rising ocean. And some of these countries are not even going to exist in a couple of years. I've been reading about Tuvalu for 10 years now. And because I lived in Australia and New Zealand, and I was in the South Pacific for four years, and being in New Zealand with these islander nations, you know, and there's more Tongans in New Zealand than there are in Tonga, and there's more Samoans in New Zealand than there are in Samoa. You know, I think that things like this are really interesting, and maybe something that's not talked about in the West a lot. Yeah, it's a really difficult balance. And the Pacific is really interesting, because I think when it does make international headlines, it's always about the Pacific Island will be gone in 10 years, the Pacific Islands are disappearing. And that narrative is actually really controversial within the Pacific countries. So it tends to be that, obviously, journalists flying into the region, covering the region, want to tell the story, which is a good headline of an entire country that's disappearing. But the reality is, on the ground, there's this really interesting fight between people who are really concerned about this and want to prepare and make sure they have plans to evacuate the country in 10 years' time, and other people who are determined that under no circumstances they will leave the country because that is their homeland, that is that they have this cultural connection to the land and don't want to move. And, and then also the Pacific is one of the most religious regions in the world. So you do also have some churches that tell their population that, you know, God had flooded the earth when with, with, with the story of Noah and said he wouldn't do that again, so we don't have to worry at all. So you have all these different dynamics, and I think that often, that those nuances often get lost in the international reporting. I think there is a danger of, and this is no way me saying that I, do, I don't believe in climate change or that I'm minimizing those risks, but there is a danger that by focusing only on climate change, it negates the other issues that, the day-to-day -day issues that people are facing, health, education, and that's been an issue with international aid that it's now kind of so tied to climate change that those projects that were funding basic needs outside of that are being reduced. So there's a lot of complications there. Pacific is a fantastic region. And I think although it benefits in many respects from being able to see itself as that area affected by climate change and attracting aid through that, we've got to be careful about only talking about it in that context. 
So yes, with climate change and rising sea levels, we usually hear about it in regards to the South Pacific. But do you see any similarities in the Caribbean of things like this happening as well? The the obvious difference is in terms of the land. You don't have any atoll nations like Tuvalu and Kiribati, which are you know the the ones that are pictures being really really vulnerable of disappearing in ten years time in the Caribbean. Most of the Caribbean islands are a bit more mountainous. The one exception is perhaps the Bahamas, but even the Bahamas is a bit more elevated than the Pacific atoll countries or the Maldives, which is also similar. The Caribbean, though, is still very much facing some of the consequences of of a changing climate. And so you do have a population that is mostly coastal. The hurricanes, I think, are the the best example of this. And it's difficult to say last year's hurricane was directly connected to climate change. But if you look at the general trend over the last few decades, there are an increasing number of hurricanes and increasing severity of hurricanes. And that makes development really difficult because people say to me, well, why are you putting solar panels in there if a hurricane could come in next year? And that's that's a real issue with any infrastructure, not just solar panels. Why would you build a house there if, if a hurricane's coming next year? And so I think we've, we, we're, we're really working in those areas to focus on how we can improve the resilience of the infrastructure. And actually renewable energy, as I mentioned before, is a really interesting way of doing that in both the Caribbean and the Pacific. So there are some really interesting parallels in terms of how those regions as small island developing states are affected. And I think the other obvious parallel is that one storm can wipe out an entire country in the way we saw with Dominica, Puerto Rico, St. Martin last year. If a storm hits the United States, it's one state of a vast country, but it doesn't wipe out the entire GDP. Although on paper, the GDP or the incomes might look higher than some of the poorer countries that is really fragile, and I think that's something that we need to take account of, that the, the entire economy can be wiped out overnight if we're not careful um, by the by the small nature of, of the way that the economies are constructed. Yeah, I suppose it really is a delicate balance. So I'm, I'm interested in the connections from, you know, we're jumping around a lot here in our conversation, but I am interested in, you know, the, the parallels, like you said, between, say, the South Pacific, the Caribbean, and maybe some other island nations, like some maybe some of the ones off of the coast of Africa. Do you see a lot of similarities between these island nations in regards to their economy, in regards to behavior and lifestyle? Totally. And actually, I think you can go beyond just the developing countries. So I actually recently did a, a master's degree, which I'm just about to wrap up, which was great for my lifestyle because it was all online and I could tune in remotely. And it was at a university in Orkney, which is the, one of the furthest North Islands in Scotland. So the University of the Highlands and Islands has been established to give education across all of those remote areas of the north and west of Scotland. And so I now have a master's degree in island studies, which people are always surprised to know that that exists. (laughs) But one of the really interesting things about that for me as an Englishman was learning more about Scotland because we don't tend to learn enough about Scotland in in our schooling system. And really seeing the parallels of life on Scottish islands with life in the Caribbean, the Pacific. You know, there are some obvious differences in terms of income and the support that's available from the state. But the, the fundamental issues around transportation and economic development remain very similar, as with the Indian Ocean and African islands as well. And I think you can even take that to the Arctic region. So before the show, we were talking about how you used to live in the far north of Canada. And although some of those areas might not technically be island, islands, there's a lot of fly-in, fly-out towns that are effectively isolated. And so that's why... I was trying to find a word which goes beyond islands because I think that makes there are lots of parallels between those regions. And so I mentioned before, I grew up in a rural area, some of these other remote areas. So for now, I'm just saying that I have an interest in islands, rural and remote areas, which is a bit of a mouthful. 
But drawing parallels across all those regions and how, on the one hand, there are obviously severe disadvantages in terms of de developing the economy, but on the other hand, the constraints that you're kind of given for living in those areas really push people to innovate because you have to make use of what is what is on your doorstep. It might take three days for you to order spare parts if you're lucky, a couple of weeks if you're not, and even a couple of months in some places. So you've got to really be resourceful. I think islanders and people living in remote areas are always resourceful and take advantage of what they can. And that's why I'm interested in seeing how we can push and promote innovation happening in these countries um, and not always seeing remoteness and isolation as disadvantages, but acknowledging there are two sides to the story. So when I lived in the Arctic, I remember we would only get petrol for two months of the year because when I lived in Iqaluit, they had the Baffin Islands, the, the bay would open up, it would melt, and we were able to get the ships in to bring things in. Otherwise, the rest of the year, we had to rely on the petrol that was brought in at that time. Same thing with any type of building material. So if you wanted to do any work on your home or even if you wanted to get a new couch or anything like that, all these types of larger things, they would all need to be flowing in as well as all of our groceries were all flowing in because there was no roads outside of the country. So it's interesting that even in somewhere in the Canadian high Arctic would be similar in regards to things like this as somewhere, like we said, in the South Pacific or in the Caribbean. And it completely changes your way of thinking, your way of life, your mentality, because you have to be well organized, you have to be thoughtful in advance. And so you have a very different style of thinking than if you go somewhere where, where you can get whatever you need at the drop of a hat. And again, I think that gives people a real advantage in their, their forward thinkingness just because of the place that they live and grow up in mandates that they have to have to put so much effort into, into planning if they want to live a, a good lifestyle. Well, what we would do and what a lot of families would do there in the Arctic was we would actually order our food by shipping container. So you would order like a quarter of a shipping container or a half of a shipping container of the staple ingredients of the staple food. And you would need to bring all of this stuff in at once. And then you would need to go through it and you'd need to remove all cardboard. You'd have to go through things like really religiously and make sure there was nothing like weevils or any type of bug that was left in the cardboard. You'd have to ditch all of this stuff and just put everything into glass containers and plastic containers because this could be your food for the next six months or eight months. So you really need to think ahead and you need to be really diligent on stuff like this. It's not as easy as just, you know, ordering something off of Amazon and the next day it's at your doorstep. It's not the case at all. Completely agree with you there. We'll just take a quick break. We're just going to pause for a second on the interview because I want to tell you about this special resource that I have for you. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It is a PDF downloadable report and you're going to find it at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, why do I want to tell you about this? Well, it is an amazing resource for anyone out there who is looking to go offshore to become an expat, expat hopefuls. If you're looking at immigration or plan B residencies or any of these types of things that we talk about on the show, this really condenses the information into really easy to understand. And then from there, it gives you all the resources, links to the additional resources or who you can work with, the professionals involved in this. 
So I've had some amazing feedback on this and I want to give it to you free, 100% free. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com and at the very top of the page, you will see the special report. You can sign up. There's no credit card needed. There's no nothing like that. I just want you to have this resource because I think it's really important and I think it's going to really serve you well. So enjoy. Go to expatmoneyshow.com, download your free special report, and let's jump back into today's interview. So I want to switch things up a little bit. Can you talk to me a little bit about what is hot in sustainable energy and what is going to be hot in the future in things with renewable energy and sustainable living? Cool. So I think that makes me want to talk about Elon Musk. So I'm going to talk about Elon Musk because I think most people outside of the industry right now, he's the first person that comes to mind when people think about renewable energy. So let's just cover that first because I think there are good and bad reasons. There are good and bad consequences of that. On the one hand, the technology that Elon Musk is promoting and the platform that he's giving that is fantastic. So solar roof tiles, for example, I think are a great product. I think they're still far in the future, but I think there's a lot of interesting things there. I think the battery systems that are being promoted by Tesla are really exciting. And some of these technologies, I think, will be will be really out there. But batteries, for me, are the biggest ones that are up and coming. I will say that I do get a bit fed up of people thinking Elon Musk is the only company out there because there's so much happening in the sector and he seems to be the best person at marketing. So uh, I, that, that, if there's one takeaway, it's that the renewable energy sector is not just Elon Musk and so much else is happening. But batteries more broadly, they, I think, will do what solar photovoltaic panels did in terms of the price. So solar photovoltaic panels, they cost about 10 times more 10, 20 years ago and have just dropped and dropped and dropped in price while increasing, increasing in efficiency. And batteries are at the start or maybe halfway through a similar process where they're still quite expensive and there's still issues around batteries in terms of their lifespan. But that is where all the money is going now. And so as we see a change around batteries, it's going to completely change our relationships with energy in general, electricity. Because right now, economically, unless you're really keen for political or other reasons, it doesn't make sense for most people to put batteries in your house and back up from the grid. Because if you live somewhere where the grid's reliable or even diesel generators are probably cheaper. But if batteries become cheap, well, we can all potentially be responsible for generating, storing and using our own electricity. And that's going to completely change how we interact with the grid, with each other. Local communities might want to work together instead of, you know, on this more national scale. And I'm really excited to see where that goes. Yeah, Elon Musk is a master at marketing and his team are fantastic. Tying things back to Island Nations, his project in Australia with the largest battery complex, for lack of a better word, was pretty wild. The size and the scope and how quickly he was able to install something like that is just amazing. Absolutely. And it was interesting, actually, because... Tesla made a, made a big bet, or Elon made a big bet on that, that if it wasn't done on time, he would give the system for free. So Tesla threw all their resources into that South Australia project. And unfortunately, that was around the time that the hurricane hit Puerto Rico. So a lot of Americans were looking to Elon Musk and saying, what are you going to do in Puerto Rico? But he was so preoccupied with Australia that perhaps didn't jump into the Puerto Rico project as quickly as they could have. And so Tesla kind of are not at the forefront of Puerto Rico as they are in some other regions. But what they're doing with batteries there is really fascinating because South Australia will be, if they can prove that that works and, and see good results from it, then that will really encourage other utilities to follow, I think. And so I am excited about that. I think those battery systems are going to be huge. I think also with the batteries, you have this case of 
what I was referring to before about the unique conditions of these island nations, where you have a very high electricity price, it actually becomes economically competitive to use the batteries earlier than it would be in, say, the US or even Australia. So the small island nations, already people are installing batteries in their house at a much higher rate that they can afford to than in mainland areas. And so that will be an interesting test case to see how utilities and governments respond, which is facing an issue that I think larger areas will have to face afterwards. So full disclosure, I am a massive Elon Musk fan. <laughs> I think the projects that he works on are just super cool. These are the things that I would have dreamed about or imagined about when I was a child, you know, going to Mars, electric cars, things like this. But I respect him on one side because of the scope of the projects he's doing, but I definitely respect him about his marketing as well. Putting a car in outer space, putting a Tesla in outer space, it's hilarious, you know, and the amount of free publicity he would get from something like that. And then doing a Domino's style, you know, 30 minutes or free, you know, giant battery pack grid done in a certain amount of time or free is it's hilarious, you know, and it just gets mainstream media to really pick up on these types of things. I think that's really exciting that he's managed to capture the imagination of people who aren't nerds in the sector like me. It's been able to make things things like electric cars, battery packs in your house, you know, solar rooftops, all those things have been covered by the mainstream media and talked about in more mainstream conversations. So I think that is really important. What I'm worried about is that actually, in many respects, his company is not the people, the, the one innovating that, you know, he, the, the batteries that he's using in the houses and someone else's technology, the solar rooftops have been around for years, but he just blows people away with his marketing and the fact that he can kind of look like he is the originator of that. So that's my only caveat with Elon Musk, that I think that we need to be careful that he doesn't end up like another Google search engine or, or Gmail where people think like it's the only product in the region, whereas actually there's a lot of competition out there of cheaper and just as adequate, if not better, products. This is specifically on the renewable energy sector. Obviously, there's so much else with SpaceX and everything else going on that it goes beyond that. I love how in this interview, James, you've been able to take a lot of the common beliefs about countries like this and really turn things on its head, whether it be climate change and rising sea levels and countries disappearing or drinking rum and people thinking that that is just Caribbean life sitting on the beach and drinking rum. You've been able to really give us a insider's look on the communities and the people behind these types of stories. So I want to switch gears a little bit. I want you to tell me because we've had some really serious topics on here so far. I want you to really talk to me a little bit about the fun that you've had, some of the countries that you've really enjoyed, some things that really stood out for you while traveling to some of these island nations. As I mentioned, I'm going to be spending the next couple of months in Jamaica, and I would recommend anyone to spend some time in Jamaica. It's such a fantastic place, and you think of a small country with three million people, the impact that that has had on global culture in terms of music, sports, food, all these different things that have really come from Jamaica and have really kind of punched above its weight in terms of anywhere else of a similar size and, and, and particularly a poorer country that perhaps doesn't have the same resources. It's just an absolutely phenomenal place and has such a strong and beautiful culture. So I'm excited to spend more time there. I'm always excited to go back to Jamaica and, and see that. It's just somewhere that I would really encourage people to visit and elsewhere in the Caribbean as well. You know, if you have the chance to visit the Caribbean, please don't limit yourself to the, the world resort. 
I think Airbnb has really changed the region in a way that it hasn't before. Um, even 10 years ago, you didn't really have any other options other than staying in the all-inclusive resort, whereas now there are so many homestays and apartments that you can rent, and it's made it cheaper and much easier to travel around the Caribbean region. The other thing is a country that I went to for the first time a few months ago, Guyana. Guyana is somewhere that most people don't even know um, is in the Caribbean. Technically, it's on the mainland of South America, but it's got a Caribbean culture. It's not in Africa. It's not Ghana. And there's a lot of interesting things happening there with development right now. And just as a place that is completely almost the frontier still, there's very few foreign visitors, has very few flights or accessibility, and is really you know 90% rainforest still. I was just blown away by by the difference in, in, in that place and, and, and somewhere that's so cultural diverse that you have Indians, um, African descendants and indigenous people all living side by side. So that's another thing, the diversity of the difference between countries like Guyana and Jamaica, which on the face of it might seem similar to an outsider. But locally, there is so much going on. And I was lucky enough to go into the Amazon rainforest on a small plane and, and get to explore that country. So, yeah, another place that I'm very passionate about now. And when were you there? This was earlier this year for the first time, and I'm trying to find an excuse to go back to Guyana. I would love to go there. It, it really is that frontier, because most people have never heard of it at all. But actually, it's on the South American continent. Yeah, and completely isolated from its neighbors. I mean, unfortunately, uh, because, it, because it borders Venezuela, they, they're having a lot of worries now with everything that's happening in Venezuela. And the government of Venezuela keeps threatening to invade, which realistically won't happen because there's oil in Guyana and the US and UK governments won't let anyone invade. But just, just one of those places that you don't hear much about. But when you get there, it's just like, wow, how is, how is this place just completely unknown? I might be completely off base, but... <laughs> Guyana, that's Georgetown, right? Georgetown, correct. Isn't, okay, and I don't know <laughs> if I want to include this, but isn't that where, and, and maybe my listeners, this is the only reason that they would know Georgetown, isn't that where everyone drank the Kool-Aid? Yeah, it wasn't in Georgetown itself, it was in a smaller town outside, but that was indeed that. And I believe they were, I don't actually know much about that history, I think they were Americans that had gone down to Guyana as opposed to local Guyanese. But yeah, unfortunately, that's one of the things that people outside do know about the country. But there's so much more there than that, and equally neighboring Suriname as well, somewhere that most people don't know much about, but has an entirely different culture of its own. Both of those countries, what's also interesting about them is the diversity of immigration that's come to them. So they have Chinese people, Javanese, Indonesian people, the local people, they have the Maroon tribes, which were escaped slaves, which, you know, in the 1700s established their own communities in the deep Amazon rainforest. Two countries of less than a million people with so much diversity within just a small space. Yeah, so for my listeners who don't know, and, and I don't have my facts right in front of me because I'm trying to remember back from 10, 15 years ago when I read this, but basically there was a cult in the United States and they all left the United States and, and flew down to Georgetown. And I think that they were expecting to go to a higher plane or move to uh, another planet or something like this. They all drank the Kool-Aid and it had cyanide in it. And it was like the largest mass suicide in human history with like a couple of hundred people. I don't remember all the details. And if my listeners, if you know the details, feel free to leave it on the comments below at expatmoneyshow.com for James Ellsmore's episode, because I would love to hear what you've heard and not just the Wikipedia version, but maybe the stories as well, because it is very, very wild. Yeah, not necessarily to do with sustainable energy, but... Um, <laughs> we went a bit off topic there. <laughs> yeah, once again, off topic, but I love this conversation. You know, just talking travel and interesting history and life in some of these countries. Yeah, absolutely. So much interesting history. 
history in the Caribbean, I think because it's a small, and the Pacific Islands as well, I think because these small regions kind of get overlooked in global history, when you find out about specifics, like I just read a book on the history of Jewish people in Jamaica. You know, who knew that outside of the outside of the country? But there's this long and fascinating history there that is very specific. And, you know, we wouldn't really know unless you delved into it. In fact, there are actually graves in Kingston, Jamaica from the 1700s of Jewish pirates. That The gravestones are written in Hebrew and they have skull and crossbones on the top of them which is just a, the most random history when you think of, you know, I guess you think of Pirates of the Caribbean, but a region where people from all over the world and lots of different cultures interacted and you know, continues to today. Yeah, that is pretty wild. I never would have assumed that <laughs> for sure. So you mentioned books. Are you a big reader, James? Yes, I am. And I looked at the kind of books that, you know, you often talk about and, and recommend and that perhaps that's not the direction that I tend to go in. I read a lot of history books and um, tend to focus more on the culture and the history when I read books of the places I'm working in. Because I, as I mentioned, I, I find that fascinating and I have a geography background, which is really the social sciences meets history area. But yeah, I am, I am a big reader. So if my listeners have enjoyed this conversation and they wanted to follow up, if they wanted to read more, do you have any recommendations of things that they should look out for? Yeah, one interesting book from an outsider is Paul Theroux's book, which is The Happy Isles of Oceania Paddling the Pacific. Um, that's kind of an interesting travel book, although he was a bit of a grumpy, grumpy writer and complains about everything. But in terms of the insights that he has and kind of an overview of the whole region, that is a fascinating book. Another book that I just thought of, which is a bit more specifically on Haiti. I went to Haiti last year and, and there's a lot happening in that country. And I'm really interested in anything that kind of changes the way we think about Haiti, because unfortunately, globally, the story of that country is very much one of disaster, poverty and misery, which, you know, is unfortunately a reality. There are a lot of issues in Haiti, but there's also a fascinating local culture which gets completely overlooked. And so there's an author, Edwidge Danticat, and she's written several books that are more novels based in Haiti and really give you an insight into the local culture. One is called Crick Crack. And that's another one that I think has a fascinating history. And anyone, if you, even if you are traveling around the English-speaking Caribbean, Haiti is obviously more French and Creole-speaking. But the history of Haiti is so important as the world's first black republic, as the place that really led the revolution of slaves against the colonial overlords and pioneered so much for the led, led the way for other countries. So I think Haiti's history is really important to understand for the Caribbean and the reality of also how the country, even after independence, continued to be pillaged. Well, those are some really interesting book recommendations. So I think I'll check them out myself because I do think that this whole conversation about island nations and sustainable living in these types of places is really, really fascinating. So James, imagine that I fly over to Jamaica and we're sitting by the beach and we're having a couple of red stripes and I lean in and I'm like, James, I want to know, I want to know what the secret is for understanding these types of island nations so that I can really assimilate myself into these communities. What's that secret? What, what do I have to keep in mind, James? I, this might seem really obvious and it should be obvious, but it's a mistake that I see made so much by well-meaning, quote-unquote, people who go in, into the regions and, and want to help. And I'm sure it's not something that, you know, it's something that I'm probably guilty of sometimes too. And that whole idea of helping, so particularly through development organizations and things like that. And it's, it's a very paternalistic attitude and something that I really want to discourage people against because Jamaicans or uh, Guyanese or, or 
Fijians, you know, all these countries, they have a very strong culture. They have a lot of history of entrepreneurship and being able to do things for themselves. And so I think the whole idea of going in and telling people what they should be doing and, and helping people when local people can do things is a really difficult tightrope to walk. And obviously I'm, I'm in that sector and so I'm trying to acknowledge it as much as possible. But going in and treating people as you would business partners or entrepreneurs in your home country. It's just so important. And I see so many people, unfortunately, going in and patronizing people and just kind of having this false sense of Western superiority. And, and so hopefully that's obvious to a lot of your listeners who have traveled, traveled abroad before. But I think I can't emphasize enough the importance of, of just engaging people as equals and really making sure that you acknowledge the strength of the local community and the amount of stuff that is happening locally and not just just pushing your own kind of uh, foreign foreign agenda to, to suit your own needs food for thought thank you so much james this has been an amazing episode really really interesting conversation now if my listeners if they want to learn more if they want to find out more about you and what you do the projects you're working on where can we send them great well please follow me on twitter it's at j elsmore that's my most active social media network is there and feel free to add me on linkedin as well and then I also run a newsletter called Island Innovation, showcasing the types of projects we've talked about. And uh, I can give you the link. It's www.bit.ly forward slash Island Innovation. And that has to be all lowercase for some reason. It doesn't work if you put anything <laughs> uppercase. I don't know why. So yeah, you can go to that link, see some of my past newsletters and uh, keep in touch on some of the interesting projects and feel free to reach out to me on the social media. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, James. We'll talk soon, okay? Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. Hey everyone, I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language. And I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend, Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences. And he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand 
coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.